Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. The three men convicted for the murder of Ahmaud Arbery were sentenced today. Earlier in the proceedings, impact statements were heard from the family of Arbery. Here's his sister, Jasmine. Amai had a future that was taken from him in an instance of violence. He was robbed of his life pleasures, big and small. He would never be able to fulfill his professional dreams, nor he'd be able to start a family or even be a part of my daughter's life. The loss of Amai has devastated me and my family. So I'm asking that the man that killed him be given the maximum sentence available to the court. Later, Superior Court Judge Timothy Wamsley said he considered the own words of the defendants to help guide his decision. I'll start with Greg McMichael. In my opinion, Greg McMichael very early on in this tried to establish a narrative. He made comments like, Ahmaud Arbery was trapped like a rat. Stop or I'll blow your and I won't repeat it again head off. He effectively admitted that he wasn't sure what Ahmad Arbery had done wrong. Quote, I don't think the guy has actually stolen anything out there, or if he did, it was early in the process. But he keeps going back over and over again into this damn house. Again, back to the narrative. He told Travis, you have no choice. And then the judge handed down the sentences. The following is edited for time. Mr. McMichael, the court sentences you as follows. Count one, malice murder, life without the possibility of parole. Greg McMichael, the court sentences you as follows. Count one, malice murder, defendant was found not guilty. Count two, felony murder, life without the possibility of parole. So the court recognizing that Mr. Bryan's position is different. Uh, Again, Mr. Bryan was found not guilty on count one and count two. Court sentences Mr. Bryan to uh, life with the possibility of parole on count three. Coming up in just a moment, we'll have a reaction. But up next, state lawmakers are gearing up for another legislative session. And our new WABE politics reporters will share what's on tap under the gold dome. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The three men convicted for the murder of Ahmaud Arbery were sentenced today. We're going to now pick up those proceedings with the words of Superior Court Judge Timothy Wamsley. Went back through the, uh, my notes um, and other resources to pull some of the quotes that uh, we have in this case. I'll start with Greg McMichael. In my opinion, Greg McMichael, very early on in this, tried to establish a narrative. He made comments like, Ahmaud Arbery was trapped like a rat. Stop or I'll blow your, and I won't repeat it again, head off. He effectively admitted that he wasn't sure what Ahmaud Arbery had done wrong. Quote, I don't think the guy has actually stolen anything out there, or if he did, it was early in the process. But he keeps going back over and over again into this damn house. Again, back to the narrative. Told Travis, you have no choice. Told another individual at the side or at the scene, this guy ain't no shuffler. This guy's an asshole. Commented that he wanted him, Ahmad Arbery, to know that we weren't playing. If I could have gotten a shot at the guy, I would have shot him. Travis McMichael claims he was in shock. But it's interesting because he talks about his concern for his child and his own well-being. Part of this was while the victim was actually laying there in the street. Commented, this is the worst day of my life. Well, uh, I think it's been touched on here today. Uh, There were other individuals that were impacted. I look at the video of um, this incident. When I say the video, I think everybody knows what we're talking about. But there was one part of it that struck me as absolutely chilling. And that is, I believe it's in the enhanced video provided by the GBI. There's a frame where I believe Ahmaud Arbery, it looks to be, if he's 20 yards out, that may be close, 30 yards out. And it's the frame of Travis McMichael uh, lifting the shotgun to fire at Ahmaud Arbery. And you watch that with context. And when I say context, after hearing the evidence in this case, again, thinking about a young man that had been running at that point for almost five minutes. And it is, it is a chilling, truly disturbing scene. And we got there because Travis McMichael's father saw Ahmad Arbery hauling down the street and calls out, let's go. At that point, Travis McMichael, um, despite whatever may have been going on in his life at that time, regard to family or otherwise, just goes, grabs a shotgun and goes because he assumes that it is the right thing to do. Maude Aubrey was then hunted down and shot. And he was killed because individuals here in this courtroom took the law into their own hands. Mr. Bryan. He joined in after calling out to the McMichaels. Y'all got him? Claimed he didn't know what was going on, but obviously wanted to know if this individual who was running through the neighborhood, who he didn't know, 
had been caught in some way. He said, quote, I figured he'd done something wrong, but I didn't know for sure. Or it wasn't actually this uh, quote. Those quotes are two separate quotes. Didn't know for sure. I thought he would get away. And this is the part that is disturbing to me with Roddy Bryan. If the guy would have stopped, this would have never happened. All of these quotes give context, I think, to the video that we saw during the case. And Miss um, Wanda Cooper-Jones this morning made a statement that I think when you look at these statements and you see the videos is very true. And that is, she said, when they could not scare or intimidate him, they killed him. There's been discussion about remorse. And I agree with counsel that it is, it is dangerous for defendants uh, who have multiple prosecutions against them to make statements of remorse. But remorse isn't something that is simply uh, a statement of regret. Remorse, I think, can be determined by looking at somebody's reaction to difficult circumstances and the reality of the situation that they're in. Again, it doesn't require an apology, and quite honestly, sometimes apologies are made simply to get past uh, problems. Remorse is something that's felt and demonstrated. In this case, getting back to the video, again, after Amarda Arbery fell, the McMichaels turned their backs. It's, a, again, a disturbing image, and they walked away. This was a killing. It was callous, and it occurred as far as the court is concerned, based upon the evidence, because confrontation was being sought. I think the statement was made during closing arguments. It's interesting to note that the most violent crime in Satilla Shores was the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. So sentencing does not generally provide closure. I think Ms. Wanda Cooper-Jones also talked about closure, uh, but I, I don't I don't find that it really does, and I think that's an unfortunate thing. Because in this case, I think many people are seeking closure. The mother, the father, the community, and maybe even parts of the nation. But closure is hard to define and is a granular concept. It's seen differently by all, depending on their perspective and the prism of your lives. Instead of closure, maybe we'd best see today's proceeding as an exercise in accountability. We are all accountable for our own actions. Sometimes in today's day and age, that statement is lost upon many. And today the defendants are being held accountable for their actions here in Superior Court. Today demonstrates that everybody is accountable to the rule of law. Taking the law into your own hands is a dangerous endeavor. I'm not sure how this comes across, stay it anyway. I think ultimately, with regard to the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, it, all, it holds us all accountable. I've read somewhere, and I don't remember where it was, that at a minimum, Ahmaud Arbery's death should force us, or his death should force us to consider expanding our definition of what a neighbor may be and how we treat them. I argue that maybe a neighbor is more than the people who just own property around your house. 
I believe that is, I also believe that in assuming the worst in others, we show our worst character. Assuming the best in others is always the best course of action. And maybe those are the grand lessons from this case. I will let others spend as much time as they want writing about it and talking about it. But those are my general thoughts with regard to this case and sentencing. That said, with regard to the sentence in this case, as to Travis McMichael, Mr. McMichael, the court sentences you as follows. Count one, malice murder, life without the possibility of parole. Count two, felony murder, is vacated by operation of law. Count three, felony murder, vacated by operation of law. Count four, felony murder, vacated by operation of law. Count five, felony murder, vacated by operation of law. Count six, aggravated assault, merges into count one. Count seven, aggravated assault. The court sentences the defendant to 20 years consecutive to count one. Count eight, false imprisonment, merges into count one. Count nine, attempted false imprisonment, five years concurrent to count seven. That is life plus 20. Greg McMichael, the court sentences you as follows. Count one, malice murder, defendant was found not guilty. Count two, felony murder, life without the possibility of parole. Count three, felony murder, vacated. I want to say vacated, it's vacated by operation of law in all cases. I just, I'm not going to repeat it. Count four, vacated. Count five, vacated. Count six, merges into count two. Count seven, aggravated assault, 20 years consecutive to count two. Count eight, 10 years concurrent to count seven. Count nine, five years concurrent to count seven. That is life plus 20 years. Roddy Bryan, I do want to separate a little bit because the state is making a different recommendation. And despite the back and forth that uh, Mr. Goff and I had during this case, I do want to point out a couple things that he raised that I think are appropriate to raise with regard to the sentence. Um, as far as the remorse, um, I think Roddy Bryan stands in very different shoes. Um, it is obvious from the beginning uh, that he questioned the tragedy that had occurred at the scene and was on, uh, I believe, I can't remember whose body cam, but the body cam, in fact, questioning whether or not what had occurred had occurred, and then took steps early on in this process, I think, that demonstrated that he had grave concerns that what had occurred should not have occurred. And I think that does make Mr. Bryan's situation a little bit different. However, Mr. Bryan has been convicted of felony murder. And I do not uh, believe it can be uh, disputed based on the facts of this case that uh, the verdict uh, was an appropriate verdict based upon the evidence presented at least. And when I say appropriate, what I mean is legal. Um, because I believe there's some, been some discussion about some differences between Mr. Bryan and, uh, and the McMichaels. Um, there may be some differences, but it does not change the fact that was it not for the fact that Mr. Bryan used his vehicle in a way to uh, impede Mr. Arbery's uh, course of travel, this may not have ever occurred. 
and that is sufficient for felony murder. He did cooperate with law enforcement. I will point out uh, Mr. Goff 17101B. There's actually a case out of Chatham County uh, that says it would not apply under the circumstances of this case. So the court recognizing that Mr. Bryan's position is different. Uh, again, Mr. Bryan was found not guilty on count one and count two. The court sentences Mr. Bryan to uh, life with the possibility of parole on count three. Count four is vacated. Count five is vacated. Count six, the defendant was found not guilty. Count seven merges into count three. The defendant is sentenced to 10 years consecutive to count three on count eight and five years concurrent with count eight. Both of those counts, though, will be suspended sentences, which gives Mr. Bryan a life with the possibility of parole sentence. Those are the sentences. And you've been listening to live coverage from Glenn County, Georgia. Superior Court Judge Timothy Wamsley handed down sentences for the three men convicted for the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. As we continue with our special coverage, I want to welcome back Emory University Professor Carol Anderson and also from Emory, Professor Hank Klibanoff. You all know him, a veteran journalist and also host of WABE's podcast, Barry Truth. Hank and Professor Hank and Professor Anderson, you all are with me. Thank you. Let's begin, uh, Professor Anderson, just your reaction. Um, first, before we get to the sentences, what the judge had to say, the statements from Judge Timothy Wamsley. Um, so I heard a part of it because um, I was in a meeting. But what I heard was him dealing with the issue of remorse that kept being played up. And he's like, I looked at the tape and the McMichaels turned their backs when you had Ahmad Arbery laying on the ground bleeding. He was like, that was so telling. And it really is. Um, it was the way that this wasn't a life of a human being. This was something that could be discarded. Um, and, and, and that showed, that was so apparent. And so it was the way that the judge walked us through the lack of remorse um, and the intent to engage, the reckless intent to engage, um, looking for a confrontation. And Hank, Judge Wamsley demonstrated in real time, the time that last he asked, he talked about, he painted a picture really through his lens, as he put it, how terrified he thought Ahmaud Arbery had to been experiencing. Mm -hmm. He really laid out a lot of descriptors for this case before handing down those sentences, your thoughts? Uh, I thought it was a very human response that he had, um, not just to the decision of how to and what sentence to render, but his experience of the past several weeks listening to the testimony. Um, and when I say human, um, I just thought, he let it out there. He, he said, um, you know, this was Ahmaud Arbery was running for five minutes, uh, mm -hmm. which actually I thought was a little bit less than we had, you know, estimated. I think we had thought it was closer to seven. But and he said, I just want to give you a sense of what 
five minutes is, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he said, we're going to go silent here. I'm going to time one minute. Mm -hmm. And so he just started to stopwatch. And for one minute we were all silent and he was. Very telling. When it was over, he said, that's one minute. And that's just a fraction of what this man was running. The judge said there is a lot to consider with the sentencing. He talked about moral character. He talked about remorse, as Professor Anderson talked about. He talked about how he let the defendant's words guide the court's decisions in terms of the sentences. What do you make of that, Hank? Start with you. Well, I mean, if you can get, if you have an opportunity, as particularly as a prosecutor, and now he's the, you know, the verdict renderer of using uh, a defendant's own words to explain why you're coming down with such the harshest possible sentence, uh, why wouldn't you? Um, they set themselves up, and they were unabashed, and I mean that is probably it's an, such a well-used and overused word, but it's probably the ultimate definition of privilege Mm -hmm. is when you feel like you can just say anything uh, at a time like that. And it goes along with the lack of remorse uh, to to hear Greg McMichael use the word a-hole to describe, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that seems to be not in dispute, at least the Travis McMichael suggest the suggestion by Roddy Bryan, that Travis McMichael said, F and N word over uh, Ahmad Arbery's body. And, and frankly, we debated this in doing the podcast. Is it possible that Ahmad Arbery was not even dead at that point? Mm-hmm. And the answer is that he wasn't. He, he, in all likelihood, the last words he heard were this man calling him that. But we don't even know that. At least the, the, Rod, the, the Travis McMichael people claim wait, it took Roddy Bryan three statements to the FBI before he came up with that. But but not the a-hole. And it's just, it's crass. Professor Anson, considering what the judge talked about, what he considered before handing down these sentences, moral character, using the defendant's words to guide the court's decision? It, it, it is, um, I worked for a man once who talked about being hoisted by your own petard where you have just been laid out by the mess that you did, the mess that you brought. And that's what we see here. Um, the, the, you know, where the, the prosecuting attorney talked about the text messages that were in Travis McMichael's phones that were offensive. Um, the, the, the way that Greg McMichael, um, as she talked about release the, the video thinking that this would exonerate them because they had already had their fellows within the, 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 the judicial system look at that tape and go, ah, no, there's nothing here. So that, that kind of sense that being hoisted by your own petard because it really was that video that provided the bulk of the evidence um, that showed their reckless disregard for the human life of Ahmad Arbery. Professor, I'm staying with you for a second. Judge Wamsley said sentences don't always bring closure. He said this was a case where it was an exercise in accountability. Yes. And and that was, I think about, you know, so when you see the scene, you see all of these African-Americans who are standing outside the courtroom listening. 
And you begin to think about how many times Black folks in America have hung by a thread on a judicial decision because we know how rare justice is. We know how rare accountability is. And so to, to hang there hoping, just hoping that, that the, the violence that rained down on this man would be acknowledged and recognized. Um, and we know that it's no sure thing. I think this is what the judge was speaking to. And when he also spoke to that, we need to really begin to redefine who are our neighbors. Um, it was about recognizing humanity. Um, and that was the, to me, what was so foundational in, in the way that the judge was ruling in his sentencing. He was recognizing Ahmaud Arbery's humanity. Hank, your thoughts? Uh, I'm, I'm so glad uh, that Carol brought that up because it does remind me of this, this one of my favorite moments in all of this. And, um, and that was when you get this idea that the white men are chasing him, chasing Ahmad Arbery because they think he's a stranger. He's an interloper. He's an intruder. He doesn't belong there. You know, and, and I just think of what Jim Barger, the attorney from St. Simon, said on, on our podcast, you know, and he said, you know, this is such a misreading of history. And he knew the history. It studied the culture of, of Sapelo Island and of the Geechees. He said, and he starts telling me how Ahmad Arbery's family goes back way, way back to the mm -hmm. most prominent of all the enslaved on Sapelo Island, Balali Muhammad. Mm -hmm. And he tells that story. And he says, if anybody had a right to be running there, it was a descendant of Bilali Muhammad. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, he he I mean, and of course, as you know, in the podcast, we did take his ancestry back there, mm -hmm. Ahmad Arbery's, and we took the McMichaels back to the Confederacy and to the the enslavers. And we took Roddy Bryan back to the art, to the to the Confederacy and and uh I, it just, you know, all of it rang true. And I, and I've just so the judge could have been Solomonic in a way and and going ahead and giving them life imprisonment, but with the possibility of parole, you know. And, but I think what happened clearly was he mounted his own evidence there that he had been hearing. And that's what he gave us back when he hears Travis McMichael say, this is the worst day of my life. And there's Maude Arbery sprawled. Mm -hmm. You know, blood drenched on the pavement there. You know, he, he it hit him hard as a human. Professor, you want to add something there? No, it, it really was this, this, you saw the self-absorption and it is the self-absorption of privilege where, you know, if something happens, if I'm held accountable, then I'm being oppressed. If I'm held accountable for my actions, then I'm being victimized by this system. And, and this is what the judge heard when, when Travis McMichael was on the stand, as, as Hank said, talking about this was the worst day of my life. And I'm like, but you still have your life. Ahmaud Arbery does not. Um, and, and the inability to recognize that key fact. Um, 
Yeah. And to the to Travis McMichael, again, for those folks who may just be joining us, life without the possibility of parole, life plus 20. Gregory McMichael, life without parole, life plus 20. Now, as it relates to William R. Bryan, Judge Wamsley felt that Bryan was remorseful, but still he used his vehicle in a sense to help trap Ahmaud Arbery. He got some suspended sentences on some counts, but life with the possibility of parole. And that goes back to that remorse. And we talked about this earlier in the day. And then Judge Wamsley brings it up as well. And for William Bryan, showing remorseful, whether folks believe it or not, but showing remorseful in this case could help him somewhere down the line be able to see freedom, freedom, so to speak, again. Professor Anderson? Yeah, but it was actually showing some level of remorse and some level of cooperation um, before the trial, before it looked like it was transactional. <laughs> um, and, and I think that that was a key element there. Um, but I also really appreciated the way the judge said, and you know, but if you had not used your truck to block his path, this would not have happened. And so that is where that accountability came in. And so, I mean, I just, I really appreciated this judge as much as I appreciated the district attorney in this case. Hank, you want to add to that? Um, I just am sitting here thinking um, there are a lot of things. Uh, th this judge was a good listener. I, I have to tell you, I, this was a case where when we first started in on it and I'm watching the video and I've got a, very, a strong reaction, it's very much like what I heard the judge describe today. And yet in our reporting, we're talking to, you know, like uh, David Allen Tucker, the guy, the attorney who had gotten the tape and put it, uh, gave it to that country Western radio station that put it on their website. And he put it on there because he thought it was exculpatory. OK, and he was saying, Hank, you you watch this thing and put it in slow motion and you're going to see that uh, Ahmaud Arbery was the aggressor here. You're going to see he slaps Travis McMichael 10 or 15 times upside the head. And I'm thinking, I have done that. Mm -hmm. I don't see it. Mm -hmm. And but, you know, we're in this time where everyone's questioning what you what you see with your very own eyes and try to convince you that night is day and day is night. And I was just glad to hear today that the judge didn't let any of that happen. I mean, I guess you had the, you know, the defense had the opportunity to introduce evidence that mm -hmm. the day was night, but and he trusted his own eyes and his own instincts in the way he rendered the verdict. And I thought, I thought it was uh, a, a, just a, a beautiful expression of, of what we're dealing with now that, that came from the judge, um, the, followed by a very decisive decision that I think was as harsh as he could possibly make it, even though whether it's true or not, as about one of the things was true, as the defendant's attorneys are saying, you save the harshest for the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. And these guys are not the worst of the worst. You know, they had, you know, 999 days or 99 good, good, good deeds, deeds. And, mm -hmm. and one deed that isn't, you know. And I was glad to see the prosecutor, Donikoski, bring up something that I thought was pretty important when we did the podcast, which is that when Greg McMichael was working in the DA's office, he was completely cavalier about getting his certification. Mm -hmm. 
You know, he got and he kept skipping school until the post the uh, peace officers uh, standards and training uh, academy came down on him and wanted to strip him of his badge. And Jackie Johnson came to his defense and got him an extension. And he, again, he failed. OK, mm-hmm. and she ends up having just as a sop getting him a desk job in Camden County down there so he can finish out till he gets his retirement. I mean, that's the coziness that that we were talking about before. And and I think that I, I was just glad to see that this that there was a debunking of this myth that these were all really good guys who just doggone it. They just had a bad day. Mm-hmm. You know, it was more than that. Well, yes. Professor, you want to add something? Oh, no, I was it, it really was what you saw there and what Donikowski really laid out was this was someone who thought that the rules did not apply to them. Um, and that they were absolutely impervious to the consequences of their actions and of their decisions. And that they, that's how they had rolled for so long um, in being not held accountable. And they thought the same would happen in this account, in this instance, yeah. Again, Travis McMichael sentenced to life without parole, life plus 20. Gregory McMichael, life without the possibility of parole, life plus, plus 20. William Bryan, Judge felt that he was remorseful, still gets life, but with the possibility of parole. Emory University professor Carol Anderson, author and chair of the African-American Studies Department, also from Emory, Hank Klibanoff, veteran journalist, Pulitzer Prize winning author, Peabody Award winning host of our podcast, Very Truths. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Good, good seeing you, Carol. Take care. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Once again, the state capitol will be bustling as lawmakers return next Monday. What does that mean? Well, it means a few months of hours-long committee meetings, fancy dinners with lobbyists, probably, uh, which could lead to new laws on the books when all is said and done. Now, because this 2022 session of the legislature is also a major election year, it should be an interesting one. Every member of the state House and Senate is up for re-election this November, and some are seeking higher office. Governor Brian Kemp is facing a primary challenge from within his own party. And all that could mean a lot more drama, if you love drama, under the gold dome. Let's bring in our new WABE political reporters, Raul Bally and Sam Greenglass. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having me. This is your closer look legislative preview debut for both of you. I'm sure you woke up with great excitement this morning. <laughs> yes, I did with a healthy glass of apple juice and ready to go. Apple juice. Well, I imagine by the end of the session, there's going to be something stronger than that. <laughs> <laughs> let's begin uh, I would think earlier the session but okay <laughs> All right. let's begin here fellas because uh, you know what we do know is that Governor Kemp's priorities going into the session he's already made one clear which is gun rights uh, Raul I'll start with you what do we know about this so I was at that campaign event earlier this week in Cobb County where he talked about uh, what's called constitutional carry and for those in our audience that means the ability to carry a firearm in most public places without a weapons carry permit uh, a weapons carry license is what you need right now. Right now, you know, you don't need a permit if it's in your car, 
or in your house. But most other places in public, you do need that. It would be getting rid of that permit process. And at the rally, the word he used is, I'm going to get constitutional carry across the finish line. So that's kind of one of the big things. You know, the other thing that I'm uh, that I'm uh, also trying to keep my ear on the ground for, uh, for those who remember his uh, Governor Kemp's campaign in 2017 and 2018, he talked about a $5,000 a year raise for teachers. Mm -hmm. He's done 3000 of it. I would expect sometime early next week, maybe in the state of state address, we're going to hear that other 2000 a year is going to be announced. All right. Anything else we can expect that any other measures we can expect Kemp to probably push, Sam? So I think there's two buckets of bills that we're going to see this session. Uh, bills that Republican leadership want to move and bills that they'd rather just kind of wither away and die. Um, I think the big topic that we've heard from Kemp with his gun announcement this week, and also from, from Ralston, who's the House Speaker, and from Jeff Duncan, who's the Lieutenant Governor, and the President of the Senate, is they're pushing bills about crime and public safety. Uh, Duncan specifically is talking about this tax credit program where mm -hmm. people and corporations can basically write checks to their local police departments to help with hiring and training of more officers. And this is something Republicans, including Kemp, have talked a lot about is crime. They think it has like bipartisan appeal. Um, and in Atlanta, at least, it even came up as an issue for Democrats in the last mayoral election. Uh, it's come up a lot in the context of Buckhead Cityhood movement. So I think that will be a big focus for Republican leadership in the legislature uh, this session. One thing I just want to note, though, is mm -hmm. that bumps in crime happened around the country during the pandemic, not just in big cities and not just in Atlanta. Uh, of course. Now, Ralston had an interesting take on something that's been sort of floating around the last few years, which, of course, is about legalizing casino gambling in the state. It's something lawmakers have kicked around for years. Uh, Raul, let's talk about this. What do you know about uh, Speaker Ralston and, and this gambling measure? You know, he uh, he did his annual sit down with reporters uh, that he does before the session. And one of the times my ears perked up is when he talked about gambling. And, and here's what's been happening in the past few years. You know, people say, I want to do casino gambling or I want to do, you know, uh, uh, horse racing. Let's put those things on the ballot. And it's like, let's put this specific thing on the ballot or put this specific on the ballot. Well, he took a very different approach. And, and, and we brought some of the tape of, of here's what the, the speaker had to say about that. We've tripped coming out of the gate, no pun intended, uh, over the details of this thing for years. And so maybe it's time that we just we ask the question of Georgians whether they want to expand gaming. And if they say yes, then uh, then we sit down and decide you know what form it will take, whether it's going to be sports betting, whether it be horses or uh, destination resorts. Uh, uh, that kind of thing. But, you know, the details are have, have been the real hang-up on this for a number of years now. So, Raul, is he talking about, let me ask you, my apologies, he's talking about then maybe just getting a constitutional amendment, a question on, on a ballot here for Georgians? Exactly. But, this, but, but instead of asking just casino gambling or just horse racing, what the speaker is saying is something I've really never heard before at the Capitol is, let's just put all gambling on the ballot, let Georgians vote for it, and then let lawmakers figure it out afterwards. So then decide, do we do casinos? 
or do we do a horse racing? My only quirk with that is what happens to the money? Will the money be decided ahead of time or after Georgians vote? Well, and another question that has been asked in the past is, does this fall under the Georgia lottery? What do you create a new department or an agency to oversee this? You know, there's a whole lot of other tentacles tied to this. But if Ralston's plan is, you know what, let's just see if folks want something and then we'll figure it out later. Now, depending on whom you ask, Raul, as you and Sam know, when it comes to laws, <laughs> trying to figure it out later can be it can go a negative way or a positive way. Absolutely. But and here's the interesting thing. This is one of the few areas that Democrats have power at the state legislature because Republicans who want to pass this are going to need Democratic votes to make this happen because you don't have enough Republican votes because of the social conservative wing. And Democrats want to know where the money is going to go. So that's the reason this is so compelling and so interesting. Uh, Sam, you want to add anything to that? I'm good on gambling. <laughs> you you never, you never been at a roulette table? Come on, Sam. <laughs> Let's look at a few specific issues. Of course, we we can't ignore because it's been everywhere is the cityhood movement, not just in Buckhead, which you know has obviously gotten a lot of press. But you look in in Cobb County where there were four cityhood movements. We've been talking about uh, DeKalb County. Um, how could we see these movements play out in the legislature? I'll, I'll jump in on this one. The first and most interesting thing is what's coming from House Speaker David Ralston. And he is making very clear that the precedent, what precedent is set on this is going to be really important. And and people always ask, well, what's the difference between this and Brookhaven, this and Sandy Springs? This is creating a new city out of an existing city, whereas Brookhaven came just out of DeKalb County. Mm -hmm. That's that's what's and so the the speakers made clear that whatever precedent we set is going to affect all you know some of those other movements of people trying to break away from an existing city. And the other interesting thing I want to point out about Buckhead, you have the top three leaders in this state who have not endorsed this movement yet. Mm-hmm. You have the speaker, the speaker saying, you know, I, I need. I need to see what the precedent is. You have the lieutenant governor asking much more pointed questions. What happens to Atlanta public school students? What happens with bonds and infrastructure bonds? And then you have this, you have the, the governor who's also non-committal, but he's leaning. He's, he's playing the card of, I understand that crime is an issue here. But again, none of the three are endorsing this movement right now. We also know there was a big fight last year over a bill that made substantial changes. Obviously, it's the Georgia's election law that was followed by a contentious redistricting special session. We know about that. And the lawsuits. Uh, either one of you can tackle this. What can we expect or should we expect anything else from lawmakers as it relates to elections and how we do them here in Georgia or even with the districts? Yeah. So just to start with redistricting, as you mentioned, there are tons of pieces of litigation that are playing out in the courts right now. As soon as Governor Kemp signed these new maps into law, basically we saw a flurry of lawsuits from groups like the ACLU of Georgia, the NAACP of Georgia. And those are going to take a while to play out in the courts. You know, some of these lawsuits can take months, 
or even years. Uh, and that's not going to wrap up in time before we have the 2022 midterms. I mean, you have candidates who have to file what districts they're going to run for in just two months uh, before the May primaries. What could happen is some of these uh, litigation uh, lawyers will seek injunctions that might stop the maps for now to try and make something happen in time for these midterms. So we'll have to see exactly what turns out there. Uh, to turn back to election law, um, you know, as you said, there was this big package of voting law passed last session. The leadership, like Lieutenant Governor Duncan, Speaker Ralston, they're saying that they're mostly done with voting legislation. Hmm. Uh, they don't want to take up more. Ralston has talked about a bill that would be kind of narrow and would give the Georgia Bureau of Investigation uh, jurisdiction to investigate election integrity claims. Uh, you know, there has still been lots of mostly debunked claims about election integrity coming from Republicans since last November. Uh, but as we've talked about, this upcoming Republican primary is going to overshadow everything that happens this legislative session. And a lot of these Republicans who are running in tough primaries are going to want to push additional voting legislation because it plays so well with their primary base. Already, you've got Butch Miller, mm -hmm. who's the number two Senate Republican. He's running for lieutenant governor, and he's saying he's going to propose a bill to ban drop boxes altogether. So, you know, when President Biden and Vice President Harris are coming to Atlanta, next week to talk about pushing for voting rights legislation at the federal level. Part of what they're trying to do is counteract restrictive voting laws like ones that have been passed in Georgia. Yeah, and we've heard from organizations who have said for Biden and Harris, look, if you come into Atlanta, let's talk about execution. That's the message they've been sending out in terms of let's work to get something done. That's what the kind of message they've sent to the White House. I want to move on to abortion because the idea of a Texas-style abortion law has been floating around, one that would basically deputize private citizens to sue folks who facilitate or help with abortions. Are you all hearing that we can expect a measure like that to be introduced? I expect those bills to be introduced. I don't expect those bills to move. And here's why. I asked that question to, to Speaker Ralston last month and when I had a sit-down interview with him. And he's made clear he just wants to wait to see what happens with the U.S. Supreme Court and the decision they make in the Mississippi abortion case from everything I understand, we're not expecting a decision in that until the summer mm -hmm. when the legislature is long out. And, and and Governor Kemp has now made similar comments in an interview he did with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So you already have two of the three major leaders saying we're, we're not really moving on abortion right now uh, until we hear about Mississippi. I would not expect move. I, will, I expect those bills to be filed Mississippi style, Texas style. But I don't expect movement. And Sam, as you, Raul, as you and Sam know, it, with the Republicans having holding such a majority and power in the Gold Dome, any conversations about Medicaid? Now, we know federal officials have blocked a work requirement that was part of Governor Kemp's plan for a limited Medicaid expansion. Are we hearing anything about that? any measures that could be introduced to revive that plan? So only 12 states have decided not to do that Medicaid expansion. Georgia is still one of them. Mm -hmm. And we know that this is going to be a huge issue in the campaign. Stacey Abrams has talked a lot about this since she launched her second campaign for governor uh, last month. Uh, Kemp is saying that he sees this going to, he's going to 
challenge this in the courts. Um, so I have not been hearing specific legislative proposals that are going to try and tackle this issue in a different way. He's saying he's going to take it to the court. Uh, when I talked to the lieutenant governor about this this week, he's saying he hopes that the Biden administration will change their minds. That's probably not going to happen. They've been pretty clear about that, how they feel about work requirements as part of Medicaid expansion. Um, but I think what's happening here is that Republicans are framing this issue as, hey, look, it is the Biden administration who is taking away the option to expand Medicare in the state, not us, the Republicans. I mean, Ralston called Biden the Grinch taking striking down this waiver uh, just before Christmas. And I think all of that is going to muddy the water for voters when you have Abrams and Democrats saying, why haven't the Republicans expanded Medicaid? And you have Republicans saying, well, we tried to. Interesting. Interesting spin, depending on whom you ask. Now, the pandemic isn't over, obviously, as we continue with health care. What can we expect about any COVID-19 related measures? Anything? I think, uh, you know, what's happened the past two years has been the legislation that's protecting businesses. You know, anybody in a lot of businesses you walk in, you see that sign that says, you know, you're protected, you know, that this business is protected from COVID liability if you walk in. Uh, Speaker Ralston, uh, in his press conference earlier this week, said he expects that legislation to be extended another year. It really has been a year-by-year -year deal with that legislation. Now, this is it, it's kind of related. It's the idea of the billions of federal COVID dollars that the state of Georgia still has to spend. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is a very, very big deal. Of, of what that money is going to be used for. And that's another thing that I'm going to be Well, watching and they're a little for. slow on the uh, housing assistance, getting that money Correct. out too. Yeah. So I, <laughs> there's, yeah, there's so a lot that, of things they're slow on. <laughs> yes, that was kind of that, that was that original wave. Yeah. Then the, then there was this, this second wave that's coming from the Biden administration. I believe that was signed back in May. And so that's that next wave of money that could be used for things like rural broadband, obviously used for COVID, whether it's COVID testing or for schools. It's going to be interesting to see where that money goes to as well. As we wrap up, yes, it's an election year. And we know that lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are, are you know, the, they want to get elected or reelected. So I want to get your opinions from both of you all do, through your lens. What does this mean for in terms of the atmosphere down there at, at the Dome? Because, you know, constituents will, will be paying attention to what lawmakers will be doing. What do you what do you think we'll see? Sam, I'll start with you. So not only are a lot of these legislators facing elections, a lot of them are running for higher office in competitive primaries where they're trying to out jockey each other to be the most conservative, uh, the 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 most far right and best Republican candidate for the job. So I think we're going to see lots of bills filed with the aim of proving those conservative credentials. Like we've talked about bills about guns, removing mm -hmm. ballot drop boxes, book bans and teaching critical race theory in the classroom. I think all of these things are going to come up and be colored by what happens in the primary. The thing to watch is where the leadership and Governor Kemp draw the line. You know, Kemp is pushing for some of these things too, uh, like expanding gun access, but what does he do about dropbacks, for example? Sure. Um, um, yeah, so I think what conservative priorities make it through to law and what get left on, as we say in radio, the cutting room floor, that's <laughs> what I'm watching. Absolutely. Raul, what about you? I'm going to take a slightly different approach, and that is I think things are going to get done with all this money. The state of Georgia the state budget could possibly have an extra $2 billion to work with. Mm -hmm. 
And then on top of that, possibly a billion to two billion in COVID dollars. In terms of what things could actually get done, whether it's fully funding the state education formula or, um, you know, funding, funding for schools and in other areas, with this large pool of money, a rural broadband, for example, there is a range of things that really could get done mm-hmm. in that area. That's where I'm going to be watching. I'm going to be watching the state budget and I'm going to be watching the recommendations of state committees on what to do with federal COVID dollars. And ask lawmakers, where in the world would we put a horse racing track here in Atlanta? Hmm. Uh, I don't know, somewhere off Peachtree, maybe? Mm. Hmm. Interestingly, I, I, the two places I've heard about putting a race is, is one going up 85 and then the other one going out I-20 towards Augusta. 85 where? <laughs> um, I want to say... I don't remember where, because I had done a story about doing it between Augusta and Atlanta. I don't really know the area along 85, but kind of that Lake Oconee, Lake Sinclair area to the east of here is one of the areas that I've heard. And then obviously Savannah was another place that mm-hmm. people have talked about putting a horse track. Interesting. Raul Bally, Sam Greenglass, our WABE's team of political reporters. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We look forward to many conversations as the 2022 legislative session gets underway, as I tell all the reporters, when it starts, make sure you have your running shoes on. <laughs> Thanks, Rose. I will. Thanks, Rose. All right, fellas. And that is it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel are our producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email. Rose at WABE.org. Now stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.